0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis,
1: James Bullard.
0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker.
1: And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our
0: target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, director of research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. I should note I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of many investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We're coming to you live today from the New York City Marriott Marquis. Uh, it is the site of the 2017 conference for the Wharton School's Jacob Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. Uh, we previewed the show last week with Chris Gatesy, who's the academic director of the Jacobs Levy Center here. Uh, and we have two great guests Coming to us from here, Wharton Associate Professor Finance, Nick Rusinoff, who was just on our show uh, just a few weeks ago. Nick, thanks for coming back on the program to, pl- to give you. My this pleasure. Question. Thank you. And we've got Professor Siegel joining us for the hour, Richard Roll is going to be coming on in the second half of the show to talk about uh, this year's winner of the Jacob Levy Prize for the late Stephen Ross on his contributions to the academic profession and the literature. This whole conference here is dedicated to a lot of Stephen Ross's research on the APT, the arbitrage pricing theory. Um, but Before we get into the sort of deep discussion on the conference and the macro factors, Professor Siegel, we could maybe just turn to you for some quick comments on the markets. Um, Yeah,
1: lots have been, as we're speaking, um, you know, the Dow is in record territory, the S&P is just about there. I mean, it's been a really, uh, it's been a really good week. Um, And you say, well, why, you know, why, why has it, there's been not much on earnings reports. Um, I I think, I, I think a couple of things. I think, I think there's. There's a feeling of a deal in the air. You know, uh, this the the question of the immigrants, the DACA, uh, the Dreamers Act. Um, that Trump is making a deal. I think that that has revived the hopes that Trump can make a deal on the tax side. Um, he seems to be, you know, working the the politics a little bit more and i think that the market uh you know basically uh, likes uh, likes that um uh actually today we we had some very mixed news i mean at best i mean retail sales was was not a good report industrial production was not a good report but the problem is that all these reports are Are polluted by the the hurricanes. How much is the decline in industrial production and and retail sales due to the uh, Harvey and Irma? How much is really underlying the economy? Now, on retail sales, the government didn't even say we had had an estimate. It said it couldn't even get an estimate of how much the the poor data there meant to that. When industrial production came out, they said that they thought that a good part of the decline was because of of, uh, the hurricane. So uh, we're getting some mixed data. Uh, Macro Advisors, I think, actually has the third quarter down now uh, in terms of growth, down to one and three quarters. Um, before the hurricane, they were up to three. So, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a big drop. Now, we know that this decline, which might extend certainly into the fourth quarter, certainly the first half of the fourth quarter, could produce a big boost next year as all the rebuilding takes place and gets added into gdp but at this point we're getting a lot of clouded real data and this is going to make the fed very cautious because what do we have coming up next week we have um on wednesday the quarterly meeting of the fed um no rate hike is expected they're expected to announce the decline of their balance sheet uh... Uh, the reversal of quantitative easing, Um, and we're also going to get their projections on the uh, Fed Fund's rate. Uh, Right now, the the median target of the uh, FOMC is for one more rate hike, and almost everyone believes if that's going to happen, it's going to be in December. The market has a doubt about whether that's going to happen. Um, we're going to see whether it moves um, from the uh, June, which is the last reading we got, through September, whether this uncertainty about uh, what's going on in the real economy, whether that changes uh, that increase or not. But I, I really think um, the, 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 tax, the possibility of a tax deal is, uh, is, is one of the things I think is um, driving um, the market forward this week.
0: Yeah, it is interesting to see him Trump going towards the Democratic side, trying to do some more deals. We saw that. Maybe we're seeing that on the immigration side. We saw that on the debt ceiling issue. Um, interesting to yeah. see him pivot there.
1: Yeah, the, the the interesting thing is that Trump has a hammer on the uh, the uh, immigrant issue, and that is if uh, you know if this goes to the courts, what Obama did was you know you know basically make them permanent residents or citizens, uh, the courts will probably say, you cannot do this you In fact, Obama for years said, I can't do it, and then he did it. So um, th- Trump has that hammer over the Democrats. Listen, you know, I'll let this go through the courts, and I'm going to win it. So there really could be a deal. Now, the interesting thing is, is there a similar hammer on the tax cut side? And the answer, I can't see it. You know uh, I mean what is he going to give away it 's nothing like the courts are pending anything that he really has a hammer, Of course, he could say, listen, if you don 't want to join with me on on some of these things i 'll go it alone uh you know with uh, uh, you know I know i only have a ten year window i won 't be able to, have to do it uh, through reconciliation i won 't be able to get it permanent, but ten years is good enough, and we'll we 'll just do this so there 's a little bit of maneuver space over there, but certainly not as much as I think he has uh, with his immigrant issue because of um, the, the court standing. So it's going to be fascinating to see if, he, if this pivot is, is going to last and whether he can turn this into some real legislation or not.
0: Now, Nick, one of your uh, specialties is currencies. This has been one of the big years uh, for currency movements. Generally, we've had a very weak dollar this year. Today, sort of interesting reactions in some currency markets. You have the pound, which is sort of soaring in some ways. You've had strong inflation numbers out of... Out of the UK, it's about 1.3%. The UK markets aren't liking it. They're down 1% on sort of the strong pound. Um, you've got the yen is actually up today about 50 basis points. The euro's up 18. Gold's down 50 basis points. So you have some interest it's not a universal dollar move. You have things like the pound moving, you have um, Pound moving stronger, the yen moving weaker, and on top of sort of the North Korea firing a, a missile over, over Japan again. Um, anything, Any commentary on just what you've seen in the dollar this year and, and any of the sort of divergences today from some of these standard, just one off, you know, same dollar story, the whole all across the board?
2: Uh, sure. Well, clearly the dollar movements have been kind of dominated by the expectations of uh, first of monetary policy tightening, right, and potentially fiscal expansion and things like that, and then those kind of hopes or expectations being destroyed and seeing weak inflation numbers and in Fed not really ramping up rate hikes, and, and of course, you know, dollar weakening is not uh, not a surprise as a result of that. And uh, kind of more, more broadly, whatever is happening with the... Uh, with the pound, as you mentioned, and the, the pound is up, but, uh, but the UK market is, uh, is down, well, that's what oftentimes happens. In fact, uh, uh, stronger currency does not necessarily mean uh, a stronger economy. In fact, it hurts uh, uh, British, uh, British producers and uh, the compounding the fears that uh, after Brexit they're going to be facing much different uh, foreign competition because they're no longer protected by in a single market um from it uh by by the lack of kind of trade barriers and they're going to be facing much much stiffer trade barriers trading with the with the eu and that of course is their biggest uh biggest export market uh and uh well with the yen also well, the yen uh yen is a kind currency that is o- often seen as a kind of safe haven uh that that tends to rise on uh, kind of uncertainty but uh that may mean may not be happening now it's kind of hard to hard to tell the uncertainty beca- well in part because this is a kind of uncertainty that uh, could sub- could really threaten Japan as a as a country and its uh, its survival. Yes, after the Fukushima uh, earthquake, we did see yen going up, and some people thought that was kind of strange. Well, yeah. uh, you know, when you have a big chunk of capital being destroyed in, in in a country, typically an exchange rate goes up because that's kind of the, the marginal value of. Of capital, there there rises in sort of a econ uh, lingo speak, and, and kind of money flows to the country to replenish it. But uh, here the situation is different. Uh, look, if there's a nuclear war a, in that region, that you know, I, Japan has bigger problems than than destruction of capital. You know, so I don't that,
1: think we we should. Uh, you know, when we're talking about currencies, um, I don't think we should ignore the cryptocurrency, particularly today. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, With the Bitcoin, uh, I now see it uh, trading over 3,600. This morning, it was under 3,000, which means in a matter of a few hours, it it had risen 20%. One should realize it was just a a couple weeks ago, it was over 5,000, which means from two weeks ago to this morning, it dropped more than 40%. That's considered major bear market, by the way, for Mm. any asset over 40% uh, you know usually you know they get 20% is considered the standard bear market so we have unbelievable gyrations in bitcoin and discussion everywhere i'm not a great fan of cryptocurrencies and i don't want to get off on to that tangent but uh, i'm just saying that the hottest trading going on today sure. is probably uh is is in a cryptocurrency rather than a real currency. Nick, I don't know if you have any opinions about that.
2: I don't have deep insights into cryptocurrencies, but all I know is that there has been tremendous interest in cryptocurrencies and outside of Bitcoin, lots of people are setting up their own cryptocurrencies and these companies that are holding ICOs are basically cryptocurrency analogs of uh, initial public offerings because they're basically signing up investors to to, 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 to sell uh, Pre-set up uh, coins for whatever their 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 specific. I mean, uh, they,
1: you know, I mean, yeah. Since everyone sees the originators of crypto and those that held, uh, you know, Bitcoin from the beginning are now you know multi-millionaires if they held any any size. Everyone says, well, I'll start my own. There's nothing backing these. If yeah. I can start and get some publicity, hey, you know, maybe someone will buy mine, right?
2: That's right, and that always sounds like a recipe for yeah. For that, a disaster that sounds
1: really. like a bubble. Yeah. So <laughs> you have you
2: have yeah. China shutting down the trading on a lot of these, which
0: is one of the things that started the bear market uh, this week, the last few weeks, and then you had Jamie Dimon came out and say, these things yeah. are a fraud. Anybody who's, any of my J.P. Morgan traders who are trading it should be fired. Um, then you have the other people saying on the other side, so what price did Dimon buy these things at after they <laughs> fell? Um, sort of sarcastic t- comment Yeah, and the people but, say,
1: what backs the Bitcoin? And then other people yell back, yeah, what backs the dollar? Right. Um, uh, and um, Uh, but I, I, you know, we, we, you know, that that, there's, we could have a whole session on.
0: We've got to get Pat Harker from the Philly fed back on the show as I I think, you know, his expertise in operations, information management and banking feels to me like he's going to be the bank, the central banking expert on the technology side of it. So we got to get Pat Harker back on the show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nick, I want to ask you, you, you know, because part of. You know, the, 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 in the meeting today, certainly honoring Steve Ross, and, um, you know, I remember him so well when I came to Wharton in 1976. I mean, he was just like a, a beaming star and so productive and so original. Um, and um, you were discussant of a paper that has used some of the – Techniques that um, that uh, Steve actually had developed um, with others, Richard Roll and others. We're going to have the second half of the program. Do you want to give us just a, a brief summary and uh, more in layman's language? Because I know there's an awful lot of technical stuff that goes with you know arbitrage pricing and all the rest. But if, could you give us a kind of a flavor of what what what? Your, the paper you discussed and how it, its roots go back to Steve's research.
2: Sure, absolutely. And in fact, the kind of main gist of my discussion was trying to uh, relate uh, what the, what the paper was doing to that earlier research than Steve and, and others had done back in the day. Um, so this kind of conference generally honoring Steve uh, has been focusing on the area where he some of his main contributions, not all of them, but some of them, his main contributions intellectually in the field of finance have been, which is basically factor investing. He he can be seen as uh, probably a a father of uh, factor investing in finance because he came up with this theory, the arbitrage pricing theory, that um, said that, well, we shouldn't be thinking of pricing individual stocks in isolation and we shouldn't generally just be thinking of say the CAPM is about and the market beta is the only source of risk that, um, that matters. Well, there may be variety of sources of risk that affect um, various assets, stocks, bonds, and, and so on, but there are probably not that many of them that really matter. Uh, and all the other ones, what does it mean that they don't matter? Well, they, they can be diversified away. In a large enough portfolio, we shouldn't worry about the risk of a particular stock we should worry about risks that kind of compound once we put them together. Stocks that move together are stocks that are kind of risky. Why? Because they move together, it's very hard to diversify away the risk from that uh, co-movement. And from that idea, this sort of factor investing uh, approach was born instead of trying to pick uh, individual stocks, we're trying to identify Sources of common com- common movement that are rewarded with average return or risk premium, basically uh, average returns in excess of uh, the risk-free rate that you can earn by uh, kind of emphasizing these uh, these risk exposures. So, uh, value, of course, is one of the, the most famous factors. You the fact that value stocks, on average, seem to outperform growth stocks, and of course, you know, in wisdom tree, you practice that of, in 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 a variety of ways. Uh, that is. A factor uh, in a sense that value stocks tend to co-move with each other and they can move differently from 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 growth stocks in fact oftentimes in the opposite directions Uh, and that's why value investing in done systematically is a form of factor investing and that's kind of again going back to this uh, Steve Ross idea and similarly similarly for for momentum high momentum stocks stocks that have done well in the past year say they tend to move together and they outperform uh, stocks have done poorly in the, in the last year, in the near term. And we can think of it as a factor precisely because of this, uh, this co-movement. Now the paper that I discussed was trying to link these factors in returns, these sources of uh, excess return that have been identified, like value and momentum, or specifically value and momentum, to macroeconomic risk. So the idea is uh, well, why why is there this co-movement? Why are some stocks uh, riskier than others and co-moving with each other? Well, because they're differently exposed to some uh, underlying macroeconomic events. Like Jeremy, today uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the industrial production, uh, say, numbers or the uh, uh, retail sales. We can think of those as variables that capture. Uh, kind of macroeconomic activity now different stocks will react differently to these news stocks that are very cyclical will tend to not do well now today may be an exception but uh, they will not do well if industrial production is down stocks that are less cyclical will will, will maybe not react so much and the idea of this paper is using uh, these macroeconomic factors specifically industrial production growth uh, inflation growth related variables and variables having to do with the term structure of interest rates and also credit um, to identify where the value and momentum come from in the sense of what are the kind of sources of fundamental risk that are uh, rewarded and investors maybe are uh, afraid of these uh, uh, risk exposures and which is why uh, those those risk premiums are available in financial let, markets.
1: Let me just uh, th- th- this is great. Let me let me just back up for some of just to give some background to, to some of our li- listeners. When the CAPM was first developed in the late fifties and sixties, uh, the, the 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 only factor really was beta was the co movement with the market. Um, and then it was discovered that value stocks, which are those that are either you know. Low to earnings, low price to earnings, low price to book, seem to do better than they should do according to CAPM. So that's why we—that's def- well, that, why it was considered value seemed to be a factor. They—they seem to outperform in a risk-return framework more than would be just predicted on the basis of the co-movement with the market, which the very simple CAPM would predict. Now, much later. Uh, the the con in fact uh it it was it in the last ten years that momentum became a really popular factor Nick who
0: let me, let me just introduce our guest here. We're talking with Nick Rusinoff, uh, Associate Finance Professor at Wharton. Uh, we've got Professor Siegel on the line. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking about value momentum factors for uh, investing here at the Jacobs Levy Equity Conference in New York uh, at the Wharton Jacobs Levy Center. Nick? Uh, yes,
2: yeah, so, so Jeremy, you mentioned uh, that yeah. uh, value was established as a factor for maybe last uh, well, 20, 20 years or so, and momentum recently has become uh, more established as a factor. Now it's a, it's a little bit controversial in the academic sense because some people still believe that momentum is just uh, uh, kind of behavioral fads. Uh, you know, people chase trends and that pushes, uh, pushes uh, prices up beyond where they should be or sometimes maybe there's underreaction to news when a company has uh, good news. Uh, it's not fully incorporated into the price immediately. It takes some time which is why you have kind of momentum or appreciation over time. There's another school of thought that, that thinks that momentum is truly a risk factor in a sense that stocks that have done well recently are for some reason riskier than stocks that have done poorly recently. And that's not a debate that is settled by by any means. Now where factor investing is in some sense separate from this debate is that it says that, well, you don't necessarily need a, an active money manager uh, who is getting paid, uh, a lot of money potentially for getting these momentum uh, momentum exposures in the sense that if we can train a computer uh, and it doesn't take very much work in theory at least to uh, ex- execute these value and momentum strategies because they're systematic and they're they're kind of exposed to common sources of risk uh, it shouldn't cost that much and that really has pushed the idea of uh, act, you know, active versus passive investing more into this, this separation between alpha and beta and smart beta has been a term that has been also used to describe factor investing where basically we can automatize investing in these factors like value, uh, momentum, and uh, maybe some others, profitability.
1: So way uh, to uh, sh- uh, beat the market, so to speak, which of course we know the record of active money managers is extremely poor. At doing that, um, and but if we follow certain factor strategies cheaply, and and obviously that's that's a key. Um, uh, at least the history shows that on a risk-return basis, we can outperform the index. Is that is that summarized the? the, the that's thing? right, Nick.
2: That exactly. So the idea is. Uh, we can outperform the passive beat, uh, buy and hold of, uh, of the total equity market index, say, if we have uh, these factor exposures. We tilt towards value, we tilt towards momentum, maybe we tilt towards uh, quality. And at the same time, we do not need to hire necessarily an active manager uh, to deliver those tilts because they are, by their nature, they're systematic and therefore can be done at a fairly fairly low cost, and uh, this is kind of where I think the industry uh, the industry is going, using the, these factors as a way of delivering uh, cheap sources of outperformance relative to the market portfolio uh, and leaving out kind of pure stock picking and, and superior use of information. Uh, of for, for, for somebody kind of who, who specializes in those particular things
0: now let me ask you on, on value and momentum you know there's two things that you you would think seem are contradictory you know value stocks are stocks that be going down in price um, and then we' are talking about momentum as the factor is stocks that have been really going up in price and so they have this negative correlation which is why when you you know if you have to take two things that have positive expected returns they have this strong negative correlation you get much better when you combine them together your sharp ratios your risk adjusted returns increase when you combine these negatively correlated positive return expectations assets. What, wh- how do you think about that? I mean, do you think these things really should both work over long periods of time in the future?
2: That's a very good question. And this was a central question uh, in the paper that I discussed because uh, that is kind of the key puzzle, so to speak, in the academic literature at least. Why is it both value and momentum strategies are profitable on average? even though they seem to be providing a partial hedge for each other, they're, they're insuring each other. So combining them in the portfolio gives you a high average return with lower risk than if you now, were...
1: There is a dis- little distinction here, because the value stocks are those that are low in price, whether they've gone down or not relative to certain fundamentals. But the momentum is, is based on past changes in price. Um, now, so they are, you, in, in a way, it's one kind of, am I right, one sort of acting on the the, the, the the first derivative and the other is more on a level relative to fundamentals. So they're not exactly yeah. opposite, but, but there is a lot of qualities. Obviously, stocks that have been going up a lot will eventually be high relative to fundamentals, but the process of going up is a little different than being high.
2: Right, absolutely. Now, they, in, in kind of in practice, once we, especially when we go beyond stocks into other asset classes, as as, as this paper also did, like currencies and commodities, there's really no sense of uh, absolute. You can come up with with measures of purchasing power parity, for example, for for currencies, uh, but for commodities, even that is kind of strange. But for most of these asset classes, it turns out that uh, the asset that has performed well over the last three to five years, for example, will be kind of like growth. So, growth stocks, typically, even though we use uh, multiples to identify growth stock, high high price to book or for high price to earnings or something like that, typically, they will be stocks that have done well over the you know, prolonged period of time. And value stocks are stocks that have not done very well, which is why their price is low relative to Uh, fundamentals. And this is why there is this negative correlation, because over kind of shorter periods of time, there will be this overlap that stocks that have been beaten down for a long time, they will also have potentially negative momentum recently. But if they've been beaten down for a long enough period of time, they've become kind of deep value stocks, statistically, it seems like they're the ones that are going to outperform going forward, even though they have negative momentum. Uh, and likewise, stocks that have done really well for the last say five six years, they oftentimes have had good momentum in the past year, but their momentum is sort of running out because they have been you kind know, of over overvalued as behavioralists would say and now uh, the, the the more uh, uh, Chicago school crowd would uh, would say, well they're not overvalued they're just become less risky, which is why you expect a lower average return on them going forward uh, that's again that, that that's that debate but uh, but, I, Generally, it seems that um, value is quite strongly related to long-term mean reversion of prices towards their kind of long-run ratio of price to fundamental. So, so Nick, on your your topic of global macroeconomic
0: risk, explaining these high-momentum factors, does that is that research lens leading people down, do you think to sort of time the factors right now, as we were talking, there was a session on timing factors between factor rotation strategies, and there's a whole line of literature, Bob not, and Cliff Assenis debating whether you can time factors, and, and States Street today was just presenting their paper that we sort of missed while we're talking right now on, on timing factors, but do you think you know, do you, is this macro model saying you need to use economic variables to time factors? Is that
2: one of the implications of the research? So, so this paper was mostly just trying to. Well, the paper that I discussed was was about well, are are macroeconomic variables driving the variation in value or momentum strategies? Timing is another. Fascinating and potentially even more treacherous question. As as you mentioned, there is this kind of l- l- ongoing debate between the giants of uh, factor investing, like uh, Cliff Asness and Rob Arnott, about whether you can or should uh, time time these factors. And uh, you might use macroeconomic variables to, to try to do that. Historically, there has not been uh, a tremendous success in doing in doing that. And I've done some some research. Uh, on this. Myself, for example, can you, can you time value uh, uh, value investing, so are there particular times when, when you expect value to do particularly well relative to, relative to growth? Well, it's hard. It doesn't seem to be particularly strongly related to the business cycle, for example. On the other hand, if you look at valuation ratios, if you look at the, basically the book-to-market or book-to-price pr- book um, ratio of value stocks, uh, versus the uh, book-to-market ratio of the growth stocks, as that spread widens, typically you expect higher returns on value over growth going forward, and if it narrows, then mm, you, and a behavioralist would say, well, maybe value and growth are more, more uh, fairly priced relative to each other, and you don't necessarily expect a particular outperformance going forward. Uh, but uh, that is still an ongoing debate, as I said. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of discussion in this, and that's not something that one should, uh, you know, don't, don't try that at home. So, Professor Siegel, we uh, Dick Roll just walked into the room. We're
0: going to be joining by P- Professor Roll here uh, just after the break. Nick, thanks for coming on the show here. It's been my pleasure. A, your you, second Nick. time in just a short amount of time, we're going to have to keep having you back. I'm always enjoying it. Thank you very much. All right, stay tuned, everybody. After a short break, we'll be talking with Dick Roll, the Linda Professor of Finance at Caltech. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host Wharton and Professor Jeremy Siegel. We're honored to welcome our second guest, Richard Roll, who's the Lind Institute Professor of Finance at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, he's going to have some remarks here at the conference on at the Jacobs Levy Center for Quantitative Financial Innovation. There's a prize being given posthumously to the late Stephen Ross. Richard, thanks for coming to our show here today. My pleasure. Uh, Professor Siegel, I know you've yes. looked at the the research from Ross and Roll, and and the, the yeah. sort of Chen Ross and Roll papers are being talked about here. They've done a lot of work together. Uh, maybe you could sort of lead off yeah. our and our, I, our as I, I mentioned at
1: the top of the show, and you know, I came to Wharton in, in '76, and, and Steve was a you know was a star, and uh, you know I learned so much from him, um, and uh, you know it was it was very you know shocking, of course, this the spring to. To learn of his sudden passing, um, I had just seen him had come visiting Wharton a year ago, and I know Richard. Of course, um, you had known Steve so well for 20 years. Am I correct? You two had a uh, asset management firm, um, Roland Ross, um, together. Um, I mean, do you have any? You know, a few thoughts you'd just like to share with us about, you know, your long and productive association with Steve.
3: Well, sure. You're you're wrong about one thing, though, Jeremy. I knew Steve for more than 40 years. No, okay. We we, we ran uh, a we ran Roland Ross Ross Asset Management for 20. Yeah, we ran Roland Ross Asset Management for 20 years, which is an investment, an equity investment management firm, uh, using his research and the research that I did uh, with him, which was, as you know, was published uh, earlier than, in in the 1970s and early 1980s, and then we started Roland Ross somewhat after that. Um, Its headquarters happened to be in uh, Pennsylvania, in Bluebell, uh, where our third partner, uh, we set up an office there where our junior partner uh, ran some of the business, and so Steve and I I was on the West Coast. He was up in uh, New England at that time, and then Alan Uhas, our third partner, was in Bluebell. Um, so 20 years, uh, we managed equity money according to uh, the arbitrage Pricing Theory, which uh, is a multi-factor model that we're discussing at this conference today. In fact, it's the whole topic today of everything. So, uh,
1: yes, and we wanna, I, wa- I wanted to probe your mind about uh, the evolution of that, um, uh, you know, uh, you know. First, it was beta, of course, and a simple cap capm. Uh, then, you know, it, it sort of was a small stock and the value stock, uh, you know, approach, and with Fama and French popularized. And, and now, I don't know if you'd call it a little a literal explosion of factors, um, but certainly more have been added: uh, liquidity, momentum. Uh, we were talking, in Nick Russo and all just before your. I mean, what, what is your feeling about the the evolution of this? Um,
3: do you well, think it's well, moving in uh, the right I mean, direction,
1: or where do you think it should be moving now?
3: Uh, well, I don't necessarily think it's moving where it should be. Uh, you're right about one thing, though. There's been an explosion of factors. Uh, when Steve and I first started working on this, we thought that there would be a limited number of pervasive uh, systematic factors. In fact, we had a a paper we published in the Journal of Finance, I think in 1980, Can it be 37 years ago, I guess it is, uh, mm-hmm. where we said there were five factors that we could figure out were pervasive in, in um, U.S. equity returns. Uh, and by the way, the, um, those, those five factors that we published in that paper, as you know, Fama and French published a paper three years ago that discovered a five-factor return. Did they cite our paper? No, but uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's the way things go. In the
0: well, what are the differences what between the your five-factor five paper five and their five-factor paper? Well, we
3: had the same number. Our purpose was to figure out how many there were. Okay. And they yeah. were trying to identify which ones they were. But as you know, Jeremy, the number of factors has proliferated to such an extent. Um, Cam Harvey published a paper last year where he went back and did a survey of the academic literature in... Uh, documented how many factors, different factors that people had uh, suggested and tried to test. And he came up with 318 factors. <laughs> now, hopefully that's not there really aren't that. there really aren't 300 and some <laughs> pervasive systematic factors in the equity markets because if there were, I think you know we'd be in deep trouble for the next hundred years. But um, uh, some of those factors, of course, do not stand up under close scrutiny. They're not really pervasive risk factors. Some of them are characteristics, some of them are anomalies, some of them are diversifiable factors and therefore not really factors that have risk premiums associated with them. So the, the, the business now that we have to engage in is to figure out, one, how do we, when somebody suggests another factor, what kind of test do we put that uh, to in order to categorize it in the appropriate bucket. Is it really a risk factor? Is it a diversifiable one? Is it an anomaly? Is it something associated with the betas and some unknown factor? And, um, you know, hopefully... Which ones
1: do you think are are most important? Or I mean, I don't don't recall your original five, but uh, I don't know whether you've retained all of them or changed some of them, but um, which ones do you think are... Still very operative in, in let's say the markets, particularly the equity markets.
3: Well, the recent uh, you know recent papers that that I've been working on, I think there are a couple of three that are statistically significant or in are pervasive and have been around for a while. Momentum is one. Um, I think the value factor is another one, um, and then I don't know beyond that uh, except the market the market factor, of course, the market itself the beta, the if you think th- th- yeah, the beta on the market that's uh there's some Tom controversy the
1: beta is dead is it is it well it's so it surviving? was dead
3: but it's it's had a miraculous resurrection uh in the most recent um empirical work i think um okay uh, so i you know i don't think it's i don't think it's completely gone um you know as you as you probably know it it Measuring beta really depends on defining what the market index is against which you're going to measure beta. And you can get a lot of different answers depending on which index you consider as the aggregate market index. Um, if you use a, the one that's most comprehensive, I think the recent evidence is that it, it does matter. Uh, in terms and when you of say
1: comprehensive, uh, are you talking about like versus all assets? or Yeah, I'm talking about combining.
3: Uh, no, I'm talking about combining. Uh, equities, fixed income, real estate, uh, and even some of the other things, such minor things such as uh, commodities and, and exchange rates. You know the the aggregate the aggregate um, you know extends beyond just equities. Mm-hmm. But but on the other hand, I would say that 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 it's very clear that the most important factor for equities is different than the most important factor for, let's say, fixed income. If you look at big diversified fixed income portfolios and you look at big diversified equity only portfolios, the correlation is low between those two portfolios, even though they're very well diversified. And what that suggests is there's at least two really big and different factors in the equity in the fixed income markets. Um, and you know, I think we have some clue as to what they are in fixed income, uh, and there's a general market factor in equity you know, related to the general state of the economy that's not so important for bonds. On the mm-hmm. other hand, inflation and, and the term structure are, are really important for bonds and not so important for equity. So um, when you look at you those two asset classes combined, you get a good idea that you, you have multiple factors driving factors. returns. It doesn't you mean you that equities momentum. are not somewhat susceptible to fixed income factors or vice versa, but uh, the bulk of those of what's driving those two asset classes is different.
1: You, you mentioned momentum. Isn't that a rather recent one? Um, at least, I don't know. Did you have that in some of your original work? Because um, I no. think of that as... Uh, Relatively new certainly relative to the other factors that many have considered
3: Yeah, and I think and I think there's a good reason to suspect that it may not be a permanent factor Because the and the reason for that is is it seems to be more behaviorally driven uh, You know you're talking about a factor that people can easily calculate on their own it depends on the recent movement and uh, in the market uh, in individual stocks over the last uh, six months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that that leads to a higher return in the future seems like a seems like it ought to be an arbitrage opportunity in a way. So I, I don't know whether that's going to persist uh, much longer, but it is it is relatively new compared to let's say value or size and, uh, I
1: remember it was, it was actually Dick Saylor, Debunton and Saylor and others that, that pointed out years ago, on, you know, based on behavioral, you yeah. know, the three to, they they were one of the first to talk about three to five year winners as, as continuing to be winners relative to other factors. But you're, you're perfectly right. It was sort of grounded in a behavioral uh, framework rather than in a risk framework
3: that's correct
0: let me uh, just reintroduce our guest here we're talking with professor richard roll from the uh from california institute of um am I getting that score right from caltech right yeah, sorry, uh, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> professor roll so it's interesting your background on on sort of the asset management side and when when you think about the factors that you were specifically applying at, at ross and roll asset management what were what would you say you were focused on in those in that factor research and and you know, you're now thinking about momentum and value, but what were you guys focusing on back then is for people who aren't familiar with your firm?
3: Well, we um, I don't know if you've been listening to the talks today, but we, we wrote a paper and it was published in 1986, Chen, and Ross, which uh, was the first paper to look at macroeconomic variables as factors. And we had uh, unexpected changes in GDP, we had unexpected inflation, we had changes in expected inflation, we had the term structure, unexpected changes in the slope of the term structure, and in um, credit spreads, uh, which we thought was related to uh, investor confidence. So those are the kind, we, th- it was based on a macroeconomic idea that there are underlying macroeconomic factors that really are under all these other factors that people are, are, are using. And you know, that, th- the sense of that is based on just economic reasoning you know, we think you know if the if the whole market goes up unexpectedly, that's good news for some stocks. It's better news for some stocks and others, and so on. So there's a beta, which translates the unexpected changes in GDP to the different responses of individual assets. So what we did then in Roland Ross is we tried to estimate those betas for each and every one of those macro factors and. Design a portfolio that had a specific exposure to each one that the clients wanted. Let's say you had a client that didn't want to have any risk of inflation in their portfolio. Well, we could we could do that. We could fix up the portfolio so it yeah. had no volatility at all when when inflation once changes, or or for any of the other factors for that. And matter. that
1: was so based on, for instance, suppose they felt their other wealth or their personal income or somehow was related to inflation, sure. they wanted to neutralize it, not also hold that risk in their equity portfolio.
3: That, that's correct, and so it, 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 kind of, it, it kind of helped each individual client decide what kind of equity portfolio is most suitable for them, given the other things that they were exposed to. So if you were, and we could go beyond that too, we could look at, let's say, oil prices as a factor. And uh, if somebody was in the oil business and they were an executive, and they held a, a pension fund that was in oil stocks, you know, they probably didn't want much exposure to yep. oil factors, right? so we could fix them up with that kind of a portfolio. Is that, so is that
0: kind of cu- customization something you still think is happening there today? Do you think people need more of
3: that? Well, I think, I think there's not enough of it, to tell you the truth, because you know, when you think about the individuals who are, would benefit from that, let's say retail investors, whose main asset is their house, you know, and their house has a certain volatility because housing prices change quite a bit too, right? So you don't want, you don't want to have an equity portfolio for those people that's also exposed to real estate. Yeah. Right? And that, that's the kind of idea. I mean, it's, it, it's endemic, you know, when you think about anybody that's got a diversified portfolio, anybody, if, they're, if their portfolio is diversified, they're exposed to factors. They may not know which ones, and most people don't know which ones, but once you've once you've got diversification, those factors explain ninety five percent of the volatility of every single diversified portfolio, so knowing how you're allocated across those factors tells you everything about your portfolio.
1: you know it's and, interesting and you should mention that because, as you know, just last year s and p added REITs as their eleventh uh sector <laughs> yeah uh, and uh, you're, you're sort of saying, hey, if your other main asset is your house, maybe you should think twice about uh, that <laughs> having that
3: sector. Well, in fact, or you want to go short be buried, that if you it could. Be
1: buried in the financials, and yeah. then broke it out as a separate one. So I think that was very useful because now you can more easily directly, you know, hedge it. Uh,
3: uh, yeah. And identify. I, I know that um, Case and Schiller tried to start futures markets in real estate. Uh, did not succeed th- they, not, th- they weren't very successful and I'm not quite sure why because it seems to me that would be a highly useful set of futures contracts for most people to to have but
1: yeah I mean uh, again to hedging and and they did it in local mar- not only they were they trying to do a national they did a local markets uh, yeah they, the had, they, they, they tried to do it they started yeah. those indices and I I just think that the traders just they I don't know if they liked something that that you know was once a month that came out uh, and settled into, and it was subject to averaging, and um, uh, it just never never got a following. Obviously, you couldn't form the underlying, also the arbitrage against it. Although that is not necessarily the death knell for a, for a futures contract, but I think that there were there were a number of problems. The same thing. Remember when they started inflation futures, um, yeah, the they died. Problem, yeah. Um, and uh, although tips are pretty successful, and you can form your own, you know, through the nominal and the and the tips bonds, yet the futures market for that just didn't didn't survive independently.
3: Yeah, it is something of a puzzle why futures markets that would be highly useful don't don't get started. I'm I guess maybe it has to do with the underlying ability of the traders to hedge their. Futures positions, but I'm not mm-hmm. really sure about that. I mean,
1: you know, uh. Bob, as you know, Bob Shore and I, and I think it was you who took us on a little plane trip. It must have been 25 years ago, um, uh, down in Southern California. We went to your uh, farm area, and I think Bob and I were in your plane. You were a skilled pilot. Um,
3: yeah, I, I, t- I took I took you for a ride up to <laughs> up to Ohio, <Ojai> and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember we went fishing in my pond. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and Schiller had never caught a fish and no. I saw a bass I saw a bass about 3 feet off the shore and I said throw your lure right in there bob and that bass grabbed it and he was so excited <laughs> uh, Yeah I remember that
1: I remember that so you know talking about you know those those you know Bob has been talking about GDP futures and starting government starting securities that would be Denominated in GDP, and you know he's he's been thinking about risk hedging for years and years and years, and uh, it's it is puzzling, you know that that those markets have not not caught on. Um, um, where do you think where where do you think the, f- the future lies? Is is active management dead? Is it all going to just devolve to these factors in the cheapest way maybe by etfs or however it's done i mean wh- hey, professor what, Ciro, you what, didn't
0: what get, you get to hear uh, Deval uh, Deval i saw professor will make a comment that vanguard's the answer to everything so he commented <laughs> yeah. on one of the
3: panels that vanguard you just apply it all <laughs> well you know that's <laughs> they do they already have a, a, a full panoply of funds that span every factor you could possibly think of if you can if you couldn't manage your factor exposure with vanguard's uh, platform you know you 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 don't have a a prayer of doing it any other way and they and they do it very cheaply and they allow you to switch from one fund to the other free you know Mm -hmm. i mean if you were going to do if you were going to design a platform to do factor investing you couldn't think of a better one than vanguard really i told the guy from vanguard here i said you know he was saying well our investors don't really know what they're doing about factoring i said no wait a minute you know, they may know very well. You be, you just don't know what they what they're thinking. You know, in mm-hmm. the wisdom of crowds, you know, on aggregate, when all those Vanguard investors together, they probably do a pretty darn good job of it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the gain in assets through either passive, well, and we call it passive management is is exploding. What what do you think? I mean, I am, I'm am one of those, and I most of my I think my academic friends agree that these people cry there's too much passive, too much indexing, I think is pretty much nonsense. Uh, as long as active managers continue to underperform after expenses, one can not say there's too much passive management, but how uh, do you have a, how do you feel do you have a sense of how
0: much, how much is too much? Is it 70, like, right, maybe there's an estimate today, 35, 40% of the U.S. market's index, I don't know, that may be a, a below estimate, but do you think if you get to 70, 80%, that's too much at some point?
3: I, well, I, you know, there, it can't be hundred percent because then nope. nobody would do security analysis, yeah. and you know, every price would be just a random number. So it can't be hundred percent. So there's some, there is some level that's optimal. But it uh, it's it's expensive it to do, do security think? analysis. I don't think so. we
1: have because hmm. uh, you know the recent performance of active managers hasn't, hasn't been any better than its historical. Now we may not have a long enough time period, but. Well, that um,
3: th- that suggests that there's not enough passive.
1: That's exactly what I'm saying.
3: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah That's what I mean. We're not there yet. We're not even there yet. The yeah. rush into, 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 into passive. Um, and uh, do, you, do you see a? I mean, the growth of a factor. Um, I mean, everyone's trying to say we can beat you know the average and. Uh, and and move by these factors. Do you think that that has a long way to run, or or what direction do you think that's going to go in?
3: Well, if, if if there's an active manager that can time the factors, then I think they can add value. But you know, I don't I don't see that active management can add value just by deciding to reallocate from one factor to another, unless they can forecast or time the factors themselves. Uh, you know, as I said before, you know, if you've di- if you've diversified already, your portfolio is driven by the factors. You may not know which ones, but you've already got an allocation to factors. And the only question then is that you can change that allocation in such a way to predict which factor is going to do better. That's what, that's what asset management is going to be in the future, I think. And your,
1: you, 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 your statement... On momentum, going back to that, you, I, I, at first you said you identified as a factor, and then you sort of threw a little bit of doubt about whether it is it is real or not. Um, what?
3: No, I no. What I said, Jeremy, is that it is associated over the last few years, at least, with a risk premium. That is, if you're exposed to the, if you have a beta on momentum that's none not equal to the market's beta on momentum, you do better. But what I said is that I'm not sure how long that's going to last because momentum itself seems to be like a behavioral factor yeah. since you're just predicting that the same stocks will continue going in the same direction.
0: Right. And everybody should be able to get that yeah, down they as get easy get that as that down. anybody. So,
3: so why that has a risk premium I think is kind of a puzzle. But I think it empirically it has... Demonstrated that it does have one over the last few years,
0: Professor. It's uh, down to our minute, last minute 15. Any final thoughts as we've had a great conversation with both Nick Russoff and here Richard Roll?
1: Uh, no, I mean I, mean, I, I think uh, you know factor analysis, factor analysis, and understanding historically what has done better. Um, I mean that, that's still I think the way we think about. Uh, equity management. And I think what, you know, what I think Richard and, and Steve had done, they were pioneers. You were, you were, you were really pioneers in what has become a much more active, uh, and competitive field. So, uh, I think that the award to Steve is, is certainly, certainly well-deserved and, and your research with, with him, I think okay. is certainly going to be cited for many years.
0: And Professor Roll, thank you for spending the time with hits, us here at the conference.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Uh, you can follow us at our Twitter handle, at BizRadio 111. I'd like to thank our on-site producer, Emily Anton, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno in the studio. Patty Hall, our always producer. Uh, you can always follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Again, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School, Sirius XM 111. Have a great week, everybody.